If you're new with us, we are working our way through Luke's gospel. We heard a wonderful exposition last Sunday from Dr. Strickland, and today we are in uh, verses 12 to 26. So if you're new with us, welcome in on this study as we go verse by verse through the, the gospel of Luke. Let's offer a brief prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we do ask for your help now as we study your words that we could focus and we could uh, have an attentive mind and a soft heart to receive your word and be changed by it. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Well, this is one of those weeks we could all walk out of church and say, what a great sermon. And I say that because we're looking at Jesus' sermon in uh, Luke chapter 6. Or you might walk out and say, what a challenging sermon and a comforting sermon. And you could say that for four weeks straight, because this week and for the next three weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at Jesus' sermon on the plain, as recorded here in Luke chapter 6. We looked at Jesus' first recorded sermon uh, given by Luke in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus preached at his hometown of Nazareth. And the sermon had such an impact that they wanted to throw him off of a cliff. Uh, we called it a killer sermon. Uh, and a killer in not a good way, but in a, in a, uh, well, in a, in a sad way. And here we, we see Jesus' second recorded sermon given by Luke, which was also revolutionary. And he essentially teaches us the, the cost of following Jesus, but also that there is great comfort and blessing in following Jesus. And so you've got kind of the two ways to live, two options that are presented before us. One, you can, you can follow Jesus, experience some kind of suffering and be blessed, or you can live for yourself and come to a very unhappy end. And which one do you want to be? Now, this sermon doesn't tell us how to enter the kingdom. That's by grace and grace alone. That was the first sermon in Luke 4, that Jesus came to save, he came to liberate, he came to free. This is more of how do we now live as those who have entered into the kingdom. These are, you might call, ethics of kingdom citizens. Uh, spread throughout Luke chapter 6. These are the behaviors that should mark the church. Now, as you heard Maya read the text, uh, you probably heard uh, some similarity to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And there are uh, uh, many discussions that have occurred throughout history on the similarities and differences of, of Luke's sermon and Matthew's uh, sermon. Uh, I don't want to get into that whole hairball of a, of a discussion uh, in this moment. Um, I don't have any hair, but um, let's just, you got basically the, the, the idea that Luke is uh, summarizing uh, the longer sermon of Matthew and, and, de, uh, 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 and doesn't have the Jewish in, emphasis. I couldn't think of a word of de-Jewishingness of, of a sermon uh, it, because Luke has his emphasis on the Gentiles. Or I think more, more likely this is a, a different sermon in a different setting, even though Jesus touches on many of the same subjects. Um, and if you're a teacher, you know that uh, if something is true, it, it's worth repeating. And no doubt Jesus taught some of the same things in different contexts. If you've ever heard me preach anywhere outside of IDC, you've probably heard, said, uh, I've heard that before. Um, Jesus tended to say a lot of the same things. And so it doesn't really matter where we fall out on that debate. It's God's word given to us, and it's uh, to build us up in our most holy faith. Now, before we get into the sermon, we, we, we have kind of the build-up to the sermon in verses 12 to 16 as Jesus selects his apostles, and then in verses 17 to 19 
as his ministry expands to this increasing multitude of people that are coming from various places before he then addresses people with the sermon. So let's look at those first two sections, selecting the apostles and then ministering to the multitude before we look at the third section of training the disciples. He's selecting the apostles, and I I think it's significant that Luke uh, points out that Jesus spends all night in prayer. Uh, This is an all-nighter. I don't know if you've ever had an all-nighter before. Um, You know, not like a bowling lock-in all-nighter. That's of the devil. Um, but, but, or maybe you, maybe you uh, did that in, in your studies where you just didn't study all semester and, and now you pull an all-nighter and pray for God's help uh, on, on the next day. Jesus has, a, has an all-nighter in prayer. And he, he, this uh, then leads to his selection of the apostles, and we could spend uh, hours talking about kind of the biography of each guy. I'll just point out a few uh, significant features here. First of all, the number 12 of 12 apostles is significant because Jesus is anchoring his choice uh, in the history of Israel. Uh, There is continuity between the Old and New Testament, and even though Jesus is bringing this new covenant, uh, there is continuity that's being shown here and with what God has always done in the past. He calls them apostles, that is, one who is sent, one who is commissioned. Uh, Later, the ideas develop, one who saw uh, the resurrection. Uh, There are apostles in a little sense, little a sense, that were all commissioned and sent out. Um, But here we have sort of the formalizing of the apostles. We also see the prominence of Simon Peter. Peter's name heads the list uh, in each of the lists of the apostles. And I think that says something about his key role that he plays in the leadership of the church. We see this borne out in the book of Acts. Jesus gives him, Simon, this nickname, Petros, Peter, uh, which also predicts his solid future though he will have some rocky moments along the way. Peter's brother Andrew is mentioned next, and then there's another pair of brothers, James and John. These two were Galilean fishermen. Uh, We see Peter, James, and John being kind of that inner circle of the disciples. Uh, They're preaching the gospel boldly in the book of Acts. People are amazed uh, that they have so much knowledge, even though they were uh, formerly uneducated men. Philip is then mentioned. He's from Bethsaida. That's the birthplace of Peter and Andrew. And in the Gospels, he's always pointing people to Jesus. He plays a a key role in the feeding of the 5,000. He's the one who wants the Greeks to see Jesus in John 12. Bartholomew is a family name. That's probably the same person as Nathaniel. And then Matthew is mentioned, or Levi. We already looked at his calling uh, in chapter 5. This is the despised tax collector who uh, worked for the Romans. And then Thomas, who was infamous for his doubt Uh, about the resurrection, but then later believed and gave us that great confession in John 20 as he looks to the resurrected Christ and says, my Lord and my God. Tradition tells us that he went to India as an apostle. James, the son of Alphaeus, we we know very little uh, about him. He is another example of what you might call an unsung hero uh, that's in the Bible, kind of like that list of names in Romans 16 of people we don't know about. It just really reminds us that uh, the church has been blessed and sustained and enriched throughout her history uh, by people that we, we know very little or nothing about. Simon the Zealot is then noted. Zealots were political activists. Uh, they opposed Rome, and apparently Simon was one of those at some level, whether he was technically a zealot or was just uh, zealous in that way. Uh, he was, uh, it seems, very anti-Rome. Judas, the son of James, is almost certainly the Thaddeus, mentioned by Matthew and Mark. And then finally, we come to Judas Iscariot. Uh, 
And just as Peter is mentioned at the top of, of each list of these uh, listings in the New Testament, Judas is always mentioned last. And Luke adds that note, doesn't he, that Judas became the traitor. Now, we don't hear of Judas again until Luke 22. We have a little preview of what is to come. And the inclusion of Judas reminds us that Jesus did not select some perfect utopian society, um, but he, he selected some flawed individuals, and in this case, one who was actually a traitor. Now, there are a few things I think are worth noting as you think about how to apply this particular paragraph, just five real quick. First, the importance of prayer. It's very significant that Jesus spends all night in prayer. Um, I think there are two reasons for this. One, Jesus had just went through all the conflict that we talked about, these conflict stories. No doubt he's praying for grace to endure. He would not go to the cross prayerlessly, but prayerfully. And in so, he gives us an example. We need grace to endure. And so we spend time with our Father. But secondly, I think we see Jesus praying at this particular moment because Jesus is about to make a decision that will impact human history, selecting these apostles. As one writer says, Jesus had a long-term project in view called the church. And in many ways, we are here this morning because Jesus prayed there. And if Jesus needs to pray before he makes a big decision, how much more do we need to pray before we make a big decision? Actually, the text literally reads, he's in the prayer of God. It makes no sense in English, so we say in prayer to God. But I think the idea, scholars point out, is that it is prayer in conformity to the will of God. That's what Jesus is doing, communing with the Father, aligning himself in prayer uh, to God's will. So a great example on the importance of prayer. Another note here, secondly, is we see the transforming grace of Jesus in the selection of these ordinary guys. I mean, Jesus selects some guys I think that most of us would not select. <laughs> he's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the center of Rome. He's in Galilee. Uh, these are not necessarily the, the, the brightest and the best in many sense. Today, you know, we have the NFL Combine where... Uh, they scout out every single detail of a player before they make their selection. They know how big his hands are. They, they give him certain mental tests. You know, it's an amazing ordeal as these uh, scouts are looking at NFL players. Jesus, he just prays, and he picks quite a group. <laughs> uh, a dozen guys here, and they're, they're, they, they are, the New Testament doesn't hide their, their weaknesses, their foibles. I mean, you think about Peter, James, and John. I've always marveled at these guys. You know, James and John, the brothers, wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. At one place, they're like, let's just torch them. And later, John is known as the apostle of love, <laughs> saying love one another. Like, how do you go from torch them to let's love one another? Well, this is the transforming grace of Jesus. The same for Peter. Peter pulls out a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. He's always packing. And he's like, let's show hospitality to one another without grumbling, you know? Like, this, this is, these are real guys really transformed by the grace of Jesus. He takes these hot-headed, often hate-filled, ethnocentric men and transforms the world. We've named hospitals after them. Cities. How does this happen? Jesus does this, right? And that's good news. Jesus can use all sorts of people. Whether you have a PhD or a GED, 
whether you went to UNC or YouTube, Jesus is able. Some of you got that great YouTube education. Praise God. You're clapping for it. We should have a graduation ceremony, should we? <laughs> the valedictorian of YouTube University goes to. <laughs> we also see in these selections the, the unity that Christ brings. How do you take Simon the Zealot, who is opposed to Rome, and Matthew, who works for Rome, and put them on the same team? Only Jesus does that. How could a Duke fan, too soon, and a, and a UNC fan be in the same church uh, or in the same marriage? How, how do people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different classes be unified in this day and age, which is so polarized? Jesus does that. Jesus does that. And that's what we see here in this election. A fourth principle you should notice, I think, is the danger of proximity. Judas is close to Jesus for three years and betrays him. And you can be around Christian things your whole life and not be in Christ, not be a follower of Christ. So this, this applies students to you a lot, kids. Your parents may be Christians and you hear sermons, but have you believed? You trusted in Christ. There's a danger of just growing very familiar to things. Judas had the best teacher that ever walked the face of the earth. Judas could never complain, well, I wish I had a better teacher. No, you have to own your faith. You have to believe. And then finally, notice here the mystery of God's providence. Even though Jesus prays all night, he still picks Judas. And it's kind of like, man, you should have prayed another night. Like, <laughs> like how does this work? Well, Jesus' prayer did not prevent the disastrous actions of Judas, and yet the disastrous actions of Judas did not thwart the sovereign purposes of God. Prayer is this mysterious companion to the providence of God, right? Like we pray, but even though we pray, it doesn't mean we're gonna have no problems. And uh, because God is pro uh, sovereign, doesn't mean we don't pray. No, we affirm both. We pray to God, we pour our hearts to God, and we also trust in the providential working of God. He's at work, all right? That's the first paragraph. Secondly, we see quickly the, Jesus ministering to the multitude. This is the buildup now to the sermon. We see that Jesus is there at this level place, hence uh, the sermon on the plain, people call it a sermon on the level, or uh, he's at a plateau of some kind. And a great crowd of disciples, so he's selected the apostles out of a crowd of disciples, and then there is a multitude of people that are coming from all over, including the coast. And so now we have Gentiles, that are, are pushing in also to hear Jesus and to be healed of his diseases, be healed of their diseases. And those who are troubled with unclean spirits are also cured. So we, we saw this trio previously. He's teaching, he's healing, and he's casting demons out of people. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. This is a sign that the Messiah has arrived. And when the Messiah returns at his second coming, he will heal everything. We just sang about that longing for shalom, that longing for wholeness and healing. Jesus is giving a foretaste of what that will be like. And so his popularity is, uh, is rising, his power is being displayed, and his compassion toward the hurting is being displayed. 
And we bring all that now into this sermon because we hear not just what Jesus says, but we see his character revealed in this, this previous story, that whatever Jesus says out of this sermon we can know is, is flowing from a heart of compassion and, and, and one who is fully powerful, right, to, to impact us with his word. So let's look at, finally, the training of the disciples. The first part of this sermon uh, contains blessings and woes. Uh, woe is a word we don't use a whole lot, not in the way Jesus is using it here. Um, it, some translate it helpfully, I think, how terrible for you. You know, how terrible for you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And he's contrasting the, uh, a life that's blessed and a life uh, that, that is just sad. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate. It doesn't end well. And what Jesus says about the good life is very counterintuitive. As Jesus says, you're blessed if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you weep, and if people hate you. And you're like, really? So we need to do a little work here. The blessings that Jesus bestows on the poor, hungry, mourning, and persecuted are not just for people in general, I don't think, but rather for those who belong to Jesus and live in these conditions. So Jesus is not saying that poverty in and of itself is a state of blessedness or happiness. The context, the whole context here is about the cost of following Jesus. Notice how he says he lifts his eyes on his disciples. This is to his disciples. This is those who are persecuted on the account of the Son of Man. Right? So this means that there are some who follow Jesus and become poor, go hungry, will weep, and are persecuted. And some who trust in Jesus for the first time are, in those, uh, are, are poor and hungry and so on. And Jesus is just bringing this word of comfort to them, that you are blessed if you find yourself in these conditions. To be blessed, this is a rich word, it's hard to translate in English. Some translate happy, but that could be uh, very superficial at times. Being fulfilled, flourishing, being satisfied. The life that Jesus gives us here is not an easy life. After all, it might lead us to persecution, but it's a blessed life. It's the best life. It's an eternally rewarded life. So as we think about it, I think it will be helpful to apply it in three ways. First of all, notice the contrast that Jesus gives in these blessings and woes. Then notice the comfort he provides to those who are in these difficult circumstances. And then thirdly, the challenge that he offers to those with these woes, okay? So first, the contrast. What I want you to see in all the verses, as you just look at the whole thing together, is that Jesus basically gives us a contrast in worldviews, a contrast or even a clashing of worldviews, where he says essentially that there are two ways that you can view the world. You can either view it through a materialistic worldview or a kingdom worldview. You see the contrast of poor and rich, hungry and full, weeping and laughing, persecution and honor. And he says here are two different ways to see the world, two different ways to assign value to things. And what he says is not, it doesn't jive with the materialistic worldview. You say, what is that? A materialist is one who thinks that, that matter is essentially all that exists. So there's no God, there's no afterlife, there's no need for forgiveness, there's no resurrection. And consequently, what you live for is the here and now. Notice that emphasis. Um, what do you who are full now? What do you who laugh now? 
Um, these are, they live it for this momentary existence. They don't live for spiritual things, they live for stuff. They don't live for eternal things, they only live for temporal things. That's a materialist. Madonna had a song about it a long time ago. I'm a material girl living in a material world, and I'm so, I'm so well, never mind. Uh, <laughs> I, it's not important. Uh, and so for a materialist, what happens when you die? Nothing. You're just plant food. So what, what you should do now is live for the most toys, live for success, live for fame, live for something like that. And while a lot of people would not say they're philosophically a materialist, you could live like that practically, right? You might believe in God in theory, in resurrection, in theory, in forgiveness of sins, in theory, but functionally, your, your day-to-day existence is focused on the here and now. And Jesus provides this corrective in saying that the main reality is the kingdom of God, right? This hidden, unseen, but fundamental reality. Recognize the kingdom, recognize that Jesus is the king, and align yourself with his values and with his truth. Seek first, he says, the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the contrast that Jesus is giving us. Two different ways to see the world, and that's one of the things that happens when you become a Christian. You see the world differently. You assign value to things differently. So that's the first part of his sermon. Then we have the comfort, verses 20 to 23, as he's addressing his disciples. First, there's comfort to poor disciples. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And all the college students are like, amen. Right? Now, when uh, Maya was reading that, you might have said, is that a typo? I thought it was poor in spirit. Because that's what Matthew says, right? And that is true. Blessed are those who have nothing, come to God in faith, and receive the kingdom. But Luke doesn't spiritualize the poor. I don't think Luke has poor in spirit in mind. I think Luke has materially poor in mind. Because it's contrasted in verse 24 with those who are materially rich. So we got to do something with this. For some, they come to Christ and they are materially poor. And what do they have? Jesus says, the kingdom. For others, they follow Jesus, and because they follow Jesus, they become materially poor. And Jesus wants to bring a word of comfort to those who are in that particular condition. In the Old Testament, the poor are often the pious poor. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him, Psalm 34. And we know that many followers of Jesus throughout the history of the church have been poor. James tells us in James 2, 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? James is saying a lot of believers are poor, but they're rich in faith. They've inherited the kingdom. Or as Mary sang in, in the Magnificat, that he exalts those of humble estate. Not many of you were wise, Paul says, or of noble birth. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wise. Now, this doesn't mean that every believer uh, should be poor or that if you're rich, you need to now become poor. We know that there are rich Christians in the Bible. Uh, Lydia seems to be very well off. After Zacchaeus is transformed, we see him being radically generous with, uh, uh, with a lot of his income. Paul gives specific instructions to the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6, and those instructions do not say anything like all you rich people should be poor. 
What Paul says is, be generous and don't be arrogant. He says, don't set your hope on riches, but on God, right? But many of these apostles would, because of their discipleship and followers of Jesus throughout the history of the church, would be in great need from time to time. So we don't want to baptize poverty. You can have a prosperity theology, which we have to reject, and you can have a poverty theology in which we, we uh, elevate uh, those in, impoverished conditions. Proverbs 30 provides a great balance for us where the writer says there's a, a temptation for those in poverty and a temptation for those who are rich. And for those who are rich, he, he says that you're tempted to not depend on God and that uh, you, you, um, you can be led into arrogance. But to those impoverished, he says, you could be tempted to steal and profane God's name. So Jesus here, though, is comforting the poor by telling them that they have something greater than material wealth, namely the kingdom of God. And I think the one thing that the poor does have an advantage over the wealthy on, at times at least, is that they long for heaven. They long for glory. And that's what Jesus is saying. And you look at the history of believers, and you see in various moments in history, songs about heaven and glory because they're living in impoverished conditions. You think about all those old spirituals sang by enslaved Africans in America. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. You sing those songs when you live in those conditions, right? And so Jesus says, I got good news for you. The king sits high, but he looks low, right? And he's going to come home. He's going to come to bring all his poor saints into glory. Great word of comfort. Secondly, a word of comfort to the hungry. This is just a subset of the poor. What happens if you're poor? Well, you're hungry. And so Jesus says, you shall be satisfied. You notice the future tense here. That you, you can find satisfaction in me now. That is true. But you shall be satisfied. Future satisfaction is promised to every follower of Jesus Christ. We will never be in want if we love and follow Jesus Christ. We will feast in the house of Zion. And then there's comfort for disciples who weep. He says, you shall laugh. When you're weeping, you, you think laughing is out of reach sometimes, don't you? You have no joy. And we know that everybody can weep, unbelievers can weep, but I think there is a unique kind of weeping for a Christian. We weep over people's unbelief, don't we? We weep over our sin and the sin of others. We weep over the good news of the gospel, that Jesus forgives sin. We weep over the suffering that we endure. We weep over the suffering that we see in others. We weep over the death of loved ones, as the widow of Nain in Luke 7 weeps over her son. We weep with other believers who weep. And I'm sure many of you have shed tears recently in one of those ways. And Jesus has a word of comfort for us. A new world is coming. You shall laugh. <laughs> you shall laugh. There is coming a day in which this world be rid of crying and just laughing. It will be rid of mourning and just dancing. Jesus transforms. He reverses certain conditions. He exchanges beauty for ashes. And he gives us laughing and joy where we had a life of pain and hardship. You'll never cry another tear.
That's a remarkable thought. Then there's comfort for those who are persecuted for following Jesus. You notice there's a bonus word of comfort in here, kind of like Jim Gaffigan's bonus fry that he talks about in his uh, stand-up act. When you get that extra fry, uh, you know, this super long. Here's a a bonus blessing uh, for those who endure persecution. When he says, if you're hated, excluded, reviled, spurned on account of your devotion to the Son of Man, you are blessed. And he says in verse 23, rejoice in that day. And, I, and then he says, and leap for joy. Leap, I dare you to do that today. To leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now notice, in that day, I think he means in the time of persecution, in that moment. Rejoice if persecution comes. In that day. You can actually leap for joy. And there's a great example of this in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where the apostles are persecuted for uh, uh, preaching about Christ, and it says they rejoice that they were worthy to suffer for his name. There is a joy that I dare say many of us have not experienced that comes through this kind of opposition and persecution. And there is a joy that is also born in our hearts because we're anticipating heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. Nothing that we do on this earth is missed. Everything has eternal significance. And so he says, also, remember, they did that to the prophets. You're in good company. So as we look at this list, this comfort that Jesus provides, it is comfort for those who count the cost and follow Jesus. And so as we think about working this into our own hearts, I think... For, for some, perhaps, the, the, the cost of following Jesus is just now beginning to set in. You know, there's some kind of financial cost, physical cost, social cost. For others, it's felt immediately when they decide to follow Jesus. If you come to faith, let's say, out of a Muslim family, you feel that cost immediately, right? And there are all sorts of costs that come with following Jesus, but what Jesus wants us to see here is that it's worth it. Like you might not be poor, but you might give up certain pursuits because you know there's something more valuable than money, right? You may choose to take a lower paying job for the purpose of spending more time with your family or the church. Or maybe as a couple, you've just decided to live on one income for similar reasons. Or maybe you wanted to simplify your life in order to bless children through foster care or adoption. Jesus says, blessed are you. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, a son and daughter of the king. Maybe there's physical cost that comes. Some of your appetites are not satisfied because of your devotion to Jesus. Or a social cost, right? Students, you might be mocked for following Jesus. Workers in the workplace, you may be gossiped about because of your devotion to Jesus. Jesus says, rejoice in that day. Rejoice in that day. Finally, there is the challenge, and the challenge are in these woes, and and that is to consider what we value and what we worship. I'll hit these briefly for the sake of time. He hits self-centered prosperity in verse 24. Woe to those who are rich. Again, there is a category for rich Christian who is generous and, and blesses the kingdom. This is speaking of those who are only living for these things that do not really see anything beyond them. Again, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, do not set your hope on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Luke is going to have a lot to say about the proper use of possessions, as we're going to see in the study. 
And one of the things that is very striking, when he gives, Jesus gives the parable of the four soils, four ways to hear the word, for one person he says, the word doesn't bear fruit in their hearts because uh, it's choked out by the desire for riches. That is, this materialistic world that we live in is causing you not to receive the word with a heart of humility and an eagerness to, to heed it and obey it. Then he addresses the self-satisfied when he says, those who are full now, you shall be hungry. Those who have no need, we call these today the happy pagans, who don't seem to have any need for the gospel or forgiveness. It's the testimony of Ecclesiastes, of having everything but really having nothing. You'll end up, Jesus says, in a day of judgment in great hunger. Thirdly, he addresses those who are characterized by sort of a smug laughter. Jesus is not against laughing. I don't think that's the idea here. I think he is talking about something different. The, the verb is used in uh, the Septuagint of an evil kind of laughter, which looks down on the fate of enemies and is in the danger of being boastful and self-satisfied. So we would just simply call this a snob. They're characterized by a smug laughter, a kind of self-absorption that, that, that causes that. And then verse 27, woe to those who want people to speak well of them. Of course, there is a category for a Christian that we want outsiders to speak well of us for our character, our gentleness, our respect, etc. But this is not this. This is that sought-after popularity of wanting to be extolled. Because what else are you going to live for if you don't have a kingdom worldview? Well, these are the things you live for. You want to be rich? You want everything? That is, you want to be full? Um, you look down your nose at everybody else because you have those things? And you want everybody to think you're something? And Jesus says, do not do that. There is a better way to live, and that is to follow Jesus Christ and to realize that there is cost now, but there's also joy now, and there is even greater joy to come. And so Jesus, in this text, he, he, he selects his team, and he says, here's what we need to do. This is what we don't need to do. Gives us two different ways to see the world, two different ways to live. Tells us that there is a cost because he's honest. He tells us up front, but he says it's worth it. Following Jesus Christ, my friends, is always worth it. There's no greater joy than knowing Jesus Christ. And this Savior not only gives us joy now, but we can anticipate the fullness of joy that is to come to all who are ready to see him. And his kingdom is forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to write his word upon our hearts today. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. I pray that you would indeed, by your spirit, apply this word to our hearts, that you would humble us and that you would empower us to see the world rightly, to align ourselves with the purpose of the Lord Jesus. I pray uh, even now as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, we'll be mindful of the fact that we have the hope of glory because of what you endured on the cross, because of your glorious triumphant resurrection. And so we exalt you now, and we pray that you would increase our gratitude for all that you are and for all that you have done. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.